from Alaska Public Media, this is State of Art. Welcome to the weekend and to State of Art, your weekly dose of Anchorage Arts and Culture. I'm Ammon Swenson. Coming up, I speak with the author of true crime book, The Alaskan Blonde, Sex, Secrets, and the Hollywood Story that Shocked America. But first, tonight's the premiere of Anchorage Opera's production of The Pirates of Penzance. You can still catch performances on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday at 4 p.m. in the Discovery Theater at the Alaska Center for the Performing Arts. I spoke with conductor Brian Damaris and stage director slash choreographer Allison Grant. She says she has a long history with the Pirates of Penzance. I was very lucky when I was young. My mother used to play in the pit for mm. a lot of things in Toronto and in uh, London. I'm a Canadian from southwestern Ontario. And I used to get to go to rehearsals all the time. I loved it when the scenery fell down. I was kind of <sighs> vicious, but... I did do the show at the Stratford Festival and in university as an actor-singer. And then when I switched over to directing and choreographing, I've done it three or four times. But it's always different. And the type of course you have and the energy of the course kind of defines what the show is. And luckily, we have this fantastic group of people here who love music, all different kinds of music, and they're adding a huge amount into it. When you get to kind of maybe re-experience this particular opera, does it maybe take you back to when you were a kid, you know, being able to experience it as an audience member? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, everybody's dressing up as pirates and <laughs> policemen and Victorian fainting ladies, and it's just... It's really a rollicking good time, and it's part. It's in my DNA, you know. I I just love the show. <laughs> That's awesome. And how about you, Brian? Uh, what was your experience like with Pirates of Penzance? You know, prior to this current production. You know, in in college, I saw it a few times, and I've since done it with students. And my most memorable experience was actually when I was first starting out as an assistant conductor for this opera at New York City Opera with a really phenomenal cast of Broadway and opera stars and full orchestra and all the bells and whistles. And what I love about Pirates of Penzance and all of the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas is every production is so different and so much fun. And you can really try all sorts of new things with this. I mean, one of the more popular, well-known revivals of this work was in 1981, Joseph Papp's sort of rock updated version of it. So it can be grand opera and it can be light and fluffy and can be small and community oriented. And you know, there's stories of Leonard Bernstein putting on productions of Gilbert and Sullivan in his backyard with his friends when he was just a little kid. (laughs) So this is a type of piece that really speaks to everybody, every single age. Yeah, you know, that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, we kind of addressed this a little bit, but, you know, compared to other famous operas, you know, what makes this particular one so special? And I mean, it sounds like it can be a fun time. You can do a lot of stuff with it. Um, Anything else that kind of sets this one apart from maybe some of the other operas you've experienced or been a part of? Gilbert and Sullivan are poking fun of 19th century grand opera. So they're using all of the 19th century grand opera styles, but with a grain of salt and a light heart. So in many ways, the way it's written and structured is very similar to so many other operas. But the other thing is in terms of how it compares to other Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an opera. And in fact, so much the original production in which this piece actually premiered in New York City in 1879, the orchestra had been hired to play an operetta and kind of revolted saying, this is an opera. 
<laughs> because there was so much more music. And uh, the great thing about all the music is that it's just one incredibly famous tune after another. And if you have never seen Pirates of Penzance, you will probably know more than half of the music when you hear it for the first time. It's so much fun and the music is fun. And while it's kind of poking fun of opera, it's so earnest and heartwarming and endearing at the same time. And there, there are moments where the music just soars even though the story is so light and accessible. That was conductor Brian Damaris and stage director slash choreographer Allison Grant speaking with me about Anchorage Opera's The Pirates of Penzance. It opened tonight, but you can still catch performances on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday at 4 p.m. Up next, on October 17, 1953, wealthy Fairbanks businessman Cecil Wells was shot and killed in his home. His wife Diane was a glamorous beauty who claimed the couple were victims of a home invasion, but that's just the beginning. I spoke with author and journalist James Bartlett about his book examining the case called The Alaskan Blonde. It was a very different time. It was the, the 1950s. And as you probably know, Alaska had been trying for a very long time for statehood. It was a long process and there were many people for and against it. And Fairbanks, being the second biggest city, was one of the important cities. And Cecil Wells, who was the, uh, the victim in, in this story, um, he was a very big pro-statehood supporter. He was a very big personality. He was a very successful businessman initially in Anchorage and then in Fairbanks. He was very much involved in political circles, though he wasn't political himself. He was a big supporter of statehood. And so when he was murdered in his apartment, in his bed, on October 17th, 1953, it was a huge scandal. It was a huge deal. And it became an instant problem for Ted Stevens, who, of course, later became the senator, who was who was the new U.S. state attorney. It was one of his very early cases. Um, the chief of police in Fairbanks was very new to the job as well. And it was not a particularly good look, as we would call it today, that someone as important, as influential could be shot in his bed and that there wasn't an immediate search and resolution of justice. And so what many of the Wells family members told me was that they fought over the preceding years. It basically kind of got swept under the carpet because they didn't immediately come to a conclusion, even though there were arrest warrants and two people were indicted for the murder, the case never came to trial. And that seemed to be not a good look for a state that was looking, or rather a territory, that was looking to become a state, and of course law and order being a big issue. The police service and the FBI was involved because it was federal, and the state troopers, and the US Marshals, and all of them were involved in this. And policing at the time, and the police service was pretty thinly stretched and pretty poorly funded, and not the best run, and it was a number of things altogether that did not make for a good investigation on the whole. I mean, obviously, you know, you were doing a lot of uh, research, probably reading old newspaper articles, stuff like that. But then also talking to surviving family members. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of what did the research into this look like? You know, it's it's not a recent event, you know, but there are still um, living relatives that you could speak to. So I'm sure there was a lot of different kind of aspects that you had to look through to get through this book. Yes. I mean, the the archives of the, the News Miner, which is the the, the biggest newspaper, the surviving newspaper in Fairbanks were obviously invaluable. I absolutely scoured those and pretty much took out and got PDF copies of almost every single page related to the case. But as far as survivors um, were concerned, I knew, of course, when I started the research, because this happened in 1953, I knew that all the principal players that were involved were likely to, to be dead or long dead, probably. Um, and that really meant that the only people left might be siblings or maybe children. And of course, those children now would be 
elderly people themselves. Um, but luckily through Google and Facebook, um, I managed to find a few. And what really struck me and really pushed me forward initially in the story was that, that when I spoke to them, even though they were children at the time, they had grown up all their lives, never really knowing what happened and never really it being talked about amongst the family. It may have been talked about occasionally amongst the adults at the time, but no one ever talked to the children about it. So now all these children were grown up and grandparents themselves, and they were being asked questions about their grandparents and their parents, and they didn't have any answers for them. You know, they, they often could say, well, I think my grandfather was murdered, possibly by his wife, but I don't know. We never really talked about it. No one ever told me. So the more I talked to family members, the more they told me that they were kind of saying to me, look, anything that you find out, we'd like to know because we really don't know. And that spurred me on and they gave me more names and people to talk to. And I managed to find a few who luckily were, were still around and still remembered, Cecil and Diane. Diane Wells was his, his wife. Um, and they could tell me not only what they were like as, as people and as a couple, but also what they found out or what they thought over the years as well. Did, did anything uh, maybe surprise you as you were putting this together? I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of moving pieces there you know, just kind of in the case itself, maybe there's some surprises that might kind of come out. But, you know, just during your research and being so close to it, did anything especially stick out to you and surprise you? So there, there were a number of other things that were just so unusual and so unexpected that it, it, it made the research, which is always kind of the joy of, of this kind of project. The research is the joy, even even finding out the occasional famous person, you know, Earl Stanley Gardner, who created Perry Mason, the Wells family asked him about a private detective. You know, they weren't happy with the investigation, so they contacted him, you know, as, you know, the creator of Perry Mason and said, can you recommend a private detective? And he oh, wow. did. Um, you know, also Cecil Wells, the, the Wells family sent me some pictures of Cecil Wells with Walt Disney. And I, 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 I didn't believe them when they first told me that, but it turns out that uh, Walt Disney and his, his daughter came to Alaska in 1947 on a research trip which of course I confirmed in the LA Times and the local papers. And he was obviously one of the group who showed him around Anchorage. And there was a couple of pictures of Walt Disney and his daughter, just family snaps, you know, that had been taken during the trip. Now, of course, it's not really relevant to the story of, of Cecil Wells and Diane Wells and, you know, their, their marriage and whether she actually was guilty of his murder or not. But that was just something that I, I couldn't possibly have expected. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that's all I mean, if anything, it's still relevant just painting a picture of who this man was and kind of the circles that he traveled in as well, I'm sure. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's very common um, that we sometimes we forget the victim of crimes. But in this case, you know, he, he was an incredibly important and successful man. I was trying to think of sort of an equivalent today. But he and Diane, his wife, they, they were like a power couple. You know, he was he was a middle-aged man. He was 50. Diane was his younger wife, about 20 years younger, his fifth wife. So he, she was a bit of a trophy wife. Um, you know, he bought her a lot of jewelry and furs and stuff, but they did seem to have a genuine connection. They traveled a lot. They, and from the family photos I saw, they seemed to be very happy. Um, but just to show, I have an idea that he really was one of the people who would be involved in anything important that happened in relation to Anchorage or Fairbanks or even Alaska. You know, he was head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce for Alaska. He was just elected head of it just before he was murdered. So he was a very important person. And for him to be, you know, killed in his bed um, and that crime not to come to court and not really essentially to be solved even 70 years later 
that it did seem extraordinary to me. And I thought maybe with the benefit of hindsight, with a full look and re-examination of, of the case and what we know now, perhaps, or what we might understand better now, it might be able to give some sort of resolution and maybe something even, dare I, I say the word, closure for the family members, which of course are very much extended now. That was my conversation with author and journalist James Bartlett about his book, The Alaskan Blonde. And that's all the time we have for you today. For more content, you can head to the State of Art page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. State of Art is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. Theme music is Spring Breakup by Termination Dust. Get in touch with the host by sending an email to soa at alaskapublic.org.